With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the reading of the New York Times for Monday, August 29th, 2022. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. The New York Times is donated to Radio Eye by the Lexington Herald-Leader. Your reader for today is Mary Fullington. We'll start today's reading with the Merriam-Webster Word of the Day, which is jaunty, an adjective. Jaunty means lively in manner or appearance. And an example used in a sentence is The server whistled a jaunty tune as she wiped the tables and set out fresh flowers in preparation for the day's diners. Jaunty. Here is a live update from the New York Times for August 29, 2022. NASA calls off launch of Artemis moon rocket. The uncrewed mission aimed to lift off Monday morning, but engineers could not successfully troubleshoot an engine issue during the filling of the rocket with propellants. NASA's new moon rocket remained on the ground Monday, disappointing the throngs of people, including Vice President Kamala Harris and the second gentleman, Douglas Emhoff, who had gathered to watch what had promised to be a thunderous liftoff. You don't want to light a candle until it is ready to go, Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator, said on NASA television after the launch was postponed. It's just part of the space business. Monday's launch was to be the debut flight of the Space Launch System, a giant 322-foot-tall rocket to take astronauts to the moon in the coming years. NASA has additional opportunities to launch next weekend, but that depends on whether there is enough time to diagnose and fix the problem. The issue that halted Monday's launch was a liquid nitrogen line that did not adequately chill one of the rocket's four core-stage engines, part of the preparations needed before ignition. Otherwise, the temperature shock of super-cold propellants would cause sudden shrinkage of the metal engine parts. It is not uncommon for technical problems to crop up during debut launch attempts. When NASA initially tried to launch the space shuttle in 1981, the flight was called off during the countdown. It then launched two days later. The countdown, which started Saturday, continued smoothly through early Monday morning when the threat of nearby thunderstorms caused a 45-minute delay to the adding of 700,000 gallons of liquid nitrogen, I'm sorry, liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen into the rocket's propellant tanks. The filling of the liquid oxygen tank proceeded without problems, 
But for the liquid hydrogen, a leak was detected in a fuel line that attached to the bottom of the rocket. That was a recurrence of a problem that occurred during a practice countdown in April. Engineers were able to fix that problem, and the filling of the hydrogen tank resumed. The hydrogen issue that arose later in the countdown was a different one. In the last seconds of the launch countdown, some of the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen is diverted to flow around the four engines to cool them in preparation for ignition. When done this morning, the oxygen lines all worked, as did three of the hydrogen lines. But the fourth hydrogen line did not appear to open properly. This was the first test of the engine chill-down, which usually occurs 4 minutes, 40 seconds before launch. Dress rehearsals of countdown procedures earlier this year were designed to catch such issues, but were cut short by technical problems. Because of the hydrogen leak during the last rehearsal, the engine chill-down could not be performed, and that part of the countdown was skipped. But mission managers believe the rocket had passed the critical test objectives, and they moved ahead with preparations for launch. For Monday's countdown, a chill-down test was added at an earlier point to allow troubleshooting in case a problem showed up. After several troubleshooting attempts, the launch was called off. The next article is entitled, Document Inquiry Poses Unparalleled Test for Justice Department, by Katie Benner. As Justice Department officials haggled for months this year with former President Donald J. Trump's lawyers and aides over the return of government documents at his Florida home, federal prosecutors became convinced that they were not being told the whole truth. That conclusion helped set in motion a decision that would amount to an unparalleled test of the Justice Department's credibility in a deeply polarized political environment. To seek a search warrant to enter Mar-a-Lago and retrieve what prosecutors suspected would be highly classified materials beyond the hundreds of pages that Mr. Trump had already returned. By the government's account, that gamble paid off, with FBI agents carting off boxloads of sensitive material during the search three weeks ago, including some documents with top-secret markings. But the matter hardly ended there. What had started as an effort to retrieve national security documents has now been transformed into one of the most challenging, complicated, and potentially explosive criminal investigations in recent memory, with tremendous implications for the Justice Department, Mr. Trump, and public faith in government. Attorney General Merrick B. Garland now faces the prospect of having to decide whether to file criminal charges against a former president and likely 2024 Republican candidate, a step without any historical par parallel. Remarkably, he may have to make this choice twice, depending on what evidence his investigators find in their separate, broad inquiry into Mr. Trump's efforts to reverse the outcome of the 2020 election and his involvement in the January 6 attack on the Capitol. The department's January 6 investigation began as a manhunt for the rioters who attacked the Capitol. But last fall, it expanded to include actions that occurred before the assault, such as the plan to submit slates of electors to Congress that falsely stated Mr. Trump had won in several key swing states. 
This summer, prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington began to ask witnesses directly about any involvement by Mr. Trump and members of his inner circle, including the former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, had in efforts to reduce to reverse his election loss. For all his efforts to distance the department from politics, Mr. Garland cannot escape the political repercussions of his decisions. How he handles Mr. Trump will surely define his tenure. It is still unclear how either case will play out. Prosecutors working on the investigation into Mr. Trump's handling of classified information are nowhere near making a recommendation to Mr. Garland, according to people with knowledge of the inquiry. Court filings describe the work as continuing, with the possibility of more witness interviews and other investigative steps to come. So far, Garland has signaled that he is comfortable with owning all of the decisions related to Mr. Trump. He has resisted calls to appoint a special counsel to deal with investigations into the former president. In his first speech to the department's 115,000 employees last year, he expressed faith that together they could handle any case. All of us are united by our commitment to the rule of law and to seeking equal justice under the law, he said. Over the course of this year, as prosecutors sought to understand how sensitive government documents ended up at Mr. Trump's Florida resort, they began to examine whether three laws had been broken. The Espionage Act, which outlaws the unauthorized retention or disclosure of national security information, a law prohibiting the mishandling of sensitive government records, and a law against obstructing a federal investigation. By summertime, The investigation into Mr. Trump's handling of classified information had started to yield compelling indications of possible intent to thwart the law, according to two people familiar with the work. While there was not necessarily ironclad evidence, witness interviews and other materials began to point to the possibility of deliberate attempts to mislead investigators. In addition to witness interviews, the Justice Department obtained security camera footage of various parts of Mar-a-Lago from the Trump Organization. The heavily redacted affidavit explaining the government's desire for a search warrant said that the Justice Department had probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found at Mar-a-Lago and that the government has well-founded concerns that steps may be taken to frustrate or otherwise interfere with this investigation if facts in the affidavit were prematurely disclosed. But a decision about whether to charge Mr. Trump over attempts to obstruct the investigation or his handling of sensitive national security information would involve a variety of considerations. At the heart of the case would be evidence uncovered by the FBI, which is still trying to understand how and why government records made their way to Mar-a-Lago and why some remained there, despite repeated requests for their return by the National Archives and a later subpoena from the Justice Department. But the highly classified nature of some of the documents retrieved from Mar-a-Lago and the possible evidence of obstruction are only some elements that will go into any finding about pursuing a prosecution. Career national security prosecutors will conduct a robust analysis of whether that evidence persuasively shows that laws were broken. That process will include a look at how the facts have been applied in similar cases brought under those same laws, information that prosecutors examined when they investigated former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the former CIA Director David H. Petraeus. 
In the case involving Mrs. Clinton's use of a private email server, for instance, officials in the National Security Division asked prosecutors to dive deep into the history of the Espionage Act. At issue was whether her handling of classified information indicated she had engaged in gross negligence. One compelling case of gross negligence that they did find, involving a former FBI agent, included far more serious factors. After examining past examples, they found that her case did not meet that standard. In the end, the consensus was not to charge Mrs. Clinton. But Mr. Trump's case presents the additional question of obstruction of justice and the possibility that evidence could show that he or his legal team defied the Justice Department to hold on to documents that belong to the government. That, in some ways, echoes a previous obstruction inquiry conducted by Robert S. Mueller III, the special counsel who examined whether Russia interfered in the 2016 election. His final report showed that Mr. Trump tried to curtail, or even end, the special counsel inquiry as he learned more about it. But Mr. Mueller declined to say whether Mr. Trump had broken the law, allowing the attorney general at the time, William P. Barr, to clear Mr. Trump of that crime. There is no way to know whether the Justice Department has facts regarding obstruction that meet its standard of prosecution, which is evidence that would probably be sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But the Justice Department's own legal filings have thrust the question of obstruction into public view. Should Mr. Garland find that there is not enough evidence to indict Mr. Trump, the Justice Department under two successive administrations will have chosen not to recommend prosecuting Mr. Trump for that crime. If Mr. Garland chooses to move forward with charges, it will be a historic moment for the presidency, a former leader of the United States accused of committing a crime and possibly forced to defend himself before a jury of his fellow citizens. It is a process that could potentially unfold even as he runs again for the White House against an incumbent whose administration is prosecuting him. That, too, runs huge risks for the department's credibility, particularly if the national security threat presented by Mr. Trump's possession of the documents, inevitably disclosed, at least in part, during the course of any trial, do not seem substantial enough to warrant such a grave move. Mr. Garland and his investigators are fully aware of the implications of their decisions, according to people familiar with their work. The knowledge that they will be scrutinized for impropriety and overreach, they say, has underscored the need to hew to the facts. But a decision to prosecute, or to decline to prosecute, has political implications that Mr. Garland cannot escape, and no matter of judiciousness can change the fact that he is operating within an America as politically divided as it has been in decades. Mr. Trump's supporters have viewed any investigative steps around the former president as illegitimate attacks by a partisan Justice Department that is out to get him. And his detractors believe that any decision not to prosecute, no matter the evidence, would show that Mr. Trump is indeed above the law.
The next article is Justice Department Has Reviewed Documents Seized in Mar-a-Lago Search by Glenn Thrush and Alan Feuer. The Justice Department has completed an initial analysis of all sensitive documents seized by former President Donald J. Trump's Florida estate three weeks ago and put aside any materials that might be covered by attorney-client privilege, according to a court filing on Monday. The filing indicates that Mr. Trump's pending request to have a federal judge appoint an independent arbiter, known as a special master, to review the documents seized in a search of Mar-a-Lago, Mr. Trump's private club and residence, could be rendered moot. On Saturday, Judge Eileen M. Cannon of Federal District Court for the Southern District of Florida suggested she was leaning toward the appointment of a special master to independently look at the materials taken by federal agents from Mar-a-Lago. She ordered the Justice Department to respond by Tuesday and share a complete list of documents, some of them highly classified, taken in the search on August 8th. Mr. Trump's request for a special master, which was filed far later than is typical, is significant because it could provide his legal team with an opportunity to contest the government's seizure of specific documents whose ownership and possibly classification levels they see as being in dispute. But the Justice Department's three-page filing on Monday, noting that its review of the materials was completed, threw up a significant obstacle to that request. In the filing, Lawyers at the department disclosed that its privilege review team had finished its assessment of the documents and set aside a limited set of materials that potentially contain attorney-client information, a requirement that was mandated by the original search warrant issued by a federal magistrate judge in Florida this month. A deeper classification review of the intelligence implications of Mr. Trump's retention of government documents by the FBI and the Director of National Intelligence is continuing, the filing revealed. The government affidavit filed to justify the search revealed concerns in the intelligence community that Mr. Trump's possession of highly classified materials could compromise clandestine human services, collecting information overseas. In both court papers and public statements, Mr. Trump and his lawyers have argued that some of the material seized at Mar-a-Lago could be protected by executive privilege, a vestige of his service as president. But legal scholars and some judges have expressed skepticism that former presidents can unilaterally assert executive privilege over records from their time in the White House. That power, the scholars and judges say, generally resides with the current president. While Mr. Trump and his legal team have advanced arguments about executive privilege, most of the cases they cited in their filing asking for a special master concerned independent reviews of seized documents for those shielded by attorney-client privilege. The case involving Mr. Trump's attempt to get a special master has been hindered from the start by sloppy legal work and unusual procedures. That has happened, in part, because the request for a special master was filed separately from a matter it is deeply entwined with, the court fight over unsealing portions of the warrant affidavit used to justify the search of Mar-a-Lago. Last week, after receiving an initial attempt by Mr. Trump's lawyers to request a special master, Judge Cannon asked them to send her clarifications about what precisely they were asking for and why she should handle the case and not Judge Bruce E. Reinhardt, who handled the unsealing of the affidavit. 
Then, after she received a supplemental filing from Mr. Trump's legal team answering her questions, Judge Cannon took the unusual step of issuing a document that signaled her preliminary intent to to appoint a special master even before she sought the Justice Department's opinion on the matter or held a hearing on the questions. A hearing is set to take place on Thursday in West Palm Beach, Florida. In advance of the hearing, the Justice Department is also expected to file on Tuesday a detailed inventory of the materials seized, but that list, which will go into greater depth than the nominal description in the search warrant that was unsealed this month, will be filed under seal. Attorney General Merrick B. Garland and the department's leaders have yet to decide if they will seek to unseal that document, according to officials. Judge Cannon will now have access to the government's own assessment of the materials, and she could have the information needed to rule on requests by Mr. Trump's team to exclude individual documents. Next article. QAnon accounts found a home and Trump's support on Truth Social. By Tiffany Sue. Dozens of QAnon boosting accounts decamped to Truth Social this year after they were banned by other social networks and have found support from the platform's creator, former President Donald J. Trump, according to a report released on Monday. NewsGuard, a media watchdog that analyzes the credibility of news outlets, found 88 users promoting the QAnon conspiracy theory on Truth Social, each to more than 10,000 followers. Of those accounts, 32 were previously banned by Twitter. Twitter barred Mr. Trump over fears that he might incite violence after the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. He started Truth Social as an alternative in February 2022. He has amplified content from 30 of the QAnon accounts to his more than 3.9 million Truth Social followers, reposting their messages 65 times since he became active on the platform in April, according to the report. He's not simply President Trump the political leader here. He's the proprietor of a platform, said Stephen Brill, co-executive, co-chief executive of NewsGuard and the founder of the magazine, The American Lawyer. That would be the equivalent of Mark Zuckerberg reposting content from, su- from supporters of QAnon. Millions of QAnon followers believe that an imaginary cabal of sex-trafficking, Satan-worshipping liberals is controlling the government and that Mr. Trump is leading the fight against it. Fantastical QAnon ideas have taken root in mainstream Republican politics, although some supporters have struggled at the polls. The movement has been viewed by law enforcement as a potential domestic terror threat and was linked to the Capitol riot. Tech companies such as Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch have cracked down on QAnon content. The other platforms have taken some steps to deal with QAnon and other similar types of misinformation, but here it's pretty clear that they're not, Mr. Brill said of Truth Social. Truth Social did not respond to questions about NewsGuard's findings. Instead, in a statement sent through a representative, 
The social media platform said that it had, quote, reopened the Internet and given the American people their voice back. Mr. Trump previously retweeted, retweeted more than a dozen Twitter posts from QAnon promoting accounts in a single afternoon in 2020. Soon after, speaking about the conspiracy theorists, he said he had, quote, heard these people, heard these are people that love our country. On Truth Social, one user with more than 31,000 followers and three Qs in his profile name posted an image in May of Mr. Trump sitting on a throne with a crown and a Q emblem, emblem behind him. Mr. Trump reposted the image. Mr. Trump has also amplified messages that included the QAnon slogan, WWG1WGA, for where we go one, we go all. And that referred to a, quote, storm, a description for the mass arrests that the QAnon faithful believe will be used to destroy the deep state. Other messages later backed by Mr. Trump included a call for civil war and claims that the 2020 presidential election, which he lost, was a coup, according to the report. Mr. Trump also shared messages at least a dozen times from an account that posted about the storm and, quote, a war against sex traffickers and pedophiles to its more than 36,000 followers, NewsGuard found. Ricky Schiffer, a man killed by the police this month after he tried to breach the FBI's Cincinnati office, had also engaged with the same account. Of the QAnon accounts identified on Truth Social by NewsGuard, 47 have red verification badges, which the platform says it reserves for VIPs with, quote, an account of public interest. Data AI which monitors App Store activity, said Truth Social had been downloaded 3 million times in the United States on Apple iOS systems through August 26th. Truth Social executives and backers have also interacted with QAnon supporters on the platform. Devin Nunes, a California Republican who resigned from Congress after 19 years to become Truth Social's chief executive, regularly engaged with and tagged at Q. That account, which has more than 218,000 followers, has used, quote, trust the plan and other phrases associated with the conspiracy theory, NewsGuard said. Mr. Trump teamed up with Digital World Acquisition, a special purpose acquisition company, to start Truth Social. Digital World's chief executive, Patrick Orlando, has also reposted QAnon, catchphrases for his nearly 10,000 followers on the platform, according to the report, which a representative for Mr. Orlando described as a, quote, false and defamatory accusation. Mr. Orlando does not follow or pay any attention to QAnon, the representative Adam L. Schwartz said in an email, and he has no idea what constitutes so-called common QAnon catchphrases. Tiffany Sue is a tech reporter covering misinformation and disinformation and can be reached at, at T-I-F-F-K-H-S-U. The next article, Penn Station Plan Makes a High Stakes Bet on the Future of Office Work, by Matthew Haig and Patrick McGeehan. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring 
a laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <clears throat> In a bid to reshape Midtown Manhattan, Governor Kathy Hochul and New York state officials are pushing ahead with one of the largest real estate development projects in American history. Ten towers of mostly offices around Penn Station, the busiest transit center in the country. The buildings would help pay for the renovation of the dreary underground station, the reason officials have said they are seeking the additions to the skyline. But the plan is moving forward amid severe uncertainty gripping the office market. Many companies are trying to reduce their real estate footprint as workers continue to clock in from home. A clue to whether the project succeeds may lie two blocks to the west in the Hudson Yards neighborhood. Development there has not met expectations three years after a slate of new construction, including office towers, retail, and residences, opened with grand ambitions. Major office tenants there are downsizing amid the stubborn popularity of remote work and a quarter of the ultra-luxury condos remain unsold. The New York City economy has changed drastically since government officials and developers first touted plans for the Hudson Yards area over a decade ago. And it, has tra- and it has been transformed even more during the pandemic. Major corporations that moved to the neighborhood, including Warner Media, J.P. Morgan Chase, and IHS Market, are now trying to unload floors of unused office space. Still, with the Penn Station project, Ms. Hochul is doubling down on a legacy-defining bet that white-collar workers will eventually return to Midtown and that firms will be hungry as ever for office space. Ms. Hutchell has argued for the state's powerful role in the project, in which it has overstepped New York City's zoning rules to allow the developers of the sites, most of which are owned by one company, Vornado Realty Trust, to build taller and larger than they otherwise could have. Mayor Eric Adams announced this support for the project after the state clarified that the city would not lose property tax revenue on it. It won't gain much either. Boosters of the Penn Station plan often frame the fixes at the station, which are estimated to cost $7 billion and be completed by 2027, as the project's centerpiece. The plan would add taller ceilings and new entrances to the station, but no additional tracks or platforms. But the plan's most significant impact would be the new buildings, which are expected to take two decades to complete and require the demolition of numerous properties on several blocks, including a 150-year-old Roman Catholic church. For its supporters, the Penn Station project is an emphatic endorsement of New York City's future and an overdue jolt to a drab area of Manhattan. They say that the universally disliked station desperately needs to be revamped and that it makes sense to build towers around it. 
We need a Penn Station that has more capacity, that's more unified, and that is safer and able to serve the region like Grand Central, said Brian Frisch, a communications director at Regional Plan Association, a research and advocacy group. But critics warn that the development could become another Hudson Yards, a luxury neighborhood aided by tax breaks that largely benefited a single developer and unwisely depended on offices full of workers and an endless supply of wealthy buyers for high-rise condos. New York may never be the same city it was before the pandemic, those critics caution. Nearly 37 percent of all office space in the Hudson Yards neighborhood is available for lease, the highest rate in, in, in Midtown, according to the real estate firm Avison Young, a figure recently driven up by the opening of new commercial buildings and companies trying to find other tenants to take over their floors. More than half of all office construction in Manhattan, about 7 million square feet, is under development there. Quote, tenants move from building to building, and if there is insufficient growth due to the remote work phenomenon, which is here to stay, there will be landlords who are left with empty offices, said Ruth Culp Haber, a commercial real estate broker. By 2044, when the last of the Penn Station redevelopment towers are slated to be finished, the project and Hudson Yards will very nearly form a contiguous corridor of gleaming glass and steel towers. Between 30th and 34th Streets, clusters of some of the tallest buildings in North America will stretch from 6th Avenue near the Empire State Building to the eastern edge of the undeveloped train yards that border the West Side Highway. Together, the two areas would represent over 30 million square feet of buildings, with the vast majority designed for office tenants. Manhattan had 463.8 million square feet of office inventory as of the middle of last year, accounting for nearly 11 percent of all office space in the nation, according to the New York State Comptroller. The first part of the Hudson Yards project, led by the billionaire Stephen Ross at Related Companies, one of the largest real estate firms in the world, opened in spring 2019 to huge fanfare. Many companies had vied for the development rights, but Related came out on top, agreeing to pay $1 billion to the owner of the yards, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. The Hudson Yards development opened with a seven-floor mall filled with high-end retailers like Fendi and Dior, four office towers, including the fourth tallest office building in North America, and two residential buildings whose condominiums sell for about $5 million apiece. The economic turmoil stirred by the pandemic has dashed Hudson Yard's plans. Three years later, the marquee retailer at the mall, Neiman Marcus, has left its three-story store. The parent company of Facebook, which before the pandemic signed an office lease for 1.5 million square feet in Hudson Yards, recently said it would pause its expansion there. Subway ridership at the local station was down roughly 40 percent during the first two weeks of this month, compared with the same period in 2019, reflecting the commuters and consumers who have yet to return. Underscoring the shifting ambitions of Hudson Yards, Related has tried to renegotiate its existing agreement with the MTA for several years, according to two people familiar with the efforts. The developer had pledged to build six residential buildings, parks, and a school atop the other half of the project, the Western Rail Yards, by 2025. 
but it has recently explored other options, including trying to lure Madison Square Garden to the area and obtaining a casino license from the state. Quote, to be completely clear, we are going to build a transformative development on the western, western rail yards that brings jobs and inclusive growth to New York City, said John Weinstein, a spokesman at Related. Mr. Weinstein said that Related's Hudson Yards office properties had attracted major corporations paying top rent, making them, quote, perhaps the single most successful office built development in the city's history. The buildings have benefited from a pandemic trend of companies upgrading to high-quality facilities, he said. Mr. Weinstein said that at the company's office buildings that opened before the pandemic at Hudson Yards, 95% of the space has been leased, but that does not take into account space that its current tenants are trying to offload or available floors at its newest building, 50 Hudson Yards, or other developers' buildings. For many developers, the, fa- the full impact of the pandemic-induced shift in office work and remote work will not be felt for several years when large shares of leases are set to lapse. More than 70% of office leases in New York City signed before the pandemic have yet to come up for renewal, according to a study by New York University and Columbia University, suggesting that vacancy rates could climb, could continue to climb while rate rents drop. Financial analysts have warned that a permanent change in office building use could profoundly affect cities like New York, leading to a decline in the value of those properties and the property taxes collected. According to the security company Castle Systems, which tracks employee card swipes in office buildings, just 37% of workers in the city went into the office during the third week of August. Yet the Penn Station development would be even bigger than the build-out of Hudson Yards and included a similar mix of retail, residential, and hotel space, as well as lots of offices. At 33 acres, it would surpass the size of Rockefeller Center, the last comparable development in Midtown, completed 80 years ago. The scope of the project and its financing model have attracted fierce opposition from the start. After the 10 towers are built, Vornado and the other developers would not have to pay property taxes, but would contribute a yet-to-be-determined amount toward repaying the costs to upgrade Penn Station and make other improvements. The developers would pay for the construction of the buildings. A similar deal is used at Hudson Yards, where developers' payments are far less than they would have paid in property taxes, saving them millions of dollars annually. The property tax breaks for all the Penn Station buildings could total $1.2 billion, according to an analysis that also warned that the entire financing could fall short by billions of dollars, leaving the state and taxpayers scrambling to make up the difference. Among the detractors is Richard Ravitch, the former New York State Lieutenant Governor, who was the MTA chairman in the early 1980s. Mr. Ravitch said the state would be foolish to greenlight the construction of even more offices at a time of near-record-high office vacancy. Nearly 19 percent is available for rent across Manhattan. Given what has happened to the commercial market, it's not going to be a source of revenue for a long time until the market turns around, Mr. Ravitch said. Where we get the money for Penn Station should be a separate question. The broad parameters of the project were introduced before the pandemic by former Governor Andrew M. Cuomo, who began leaving his mark on this area of 
Hatton with the renovation of the Moynihan Train Hall and believed that grand public projects would define his political legacy. After Mr. Cuomo resigned in 2021 amid sexual harassment allegations, his successor, Governor Hochul, pushed forward with the project while making modest changes such as adding an outdoor plaza. Encouraging transit-oriented development in one of New York City's prime business districts while finally delivering a new world-class Penn Station that New Yorkers deserve is not only smart strategy, it makes sense. Matthew Gorton, a spokesman for Empire State Development, the agency overseeing the project, said on behalf of the governor's office. Time and again, history has proved betting against New York is a losing proposition. The new towers would encompass roughly 18 million square feet of new space surrounding Madison Square Garden, which sits above Penn Station. About three-quarters of the additional space would be devoted to offices, while the rest would provide ground-level storefronts, up to 1,800 residential units, and a 472-room hotel. The towers would include new entrances to the transit station. The final dimensions of the building have not been determined, but the state said it would not impose a maximum height except on one site. Despite the magnitude of the project, key details about the complex financial arrangement that underpins it, as well as its potential impact when fully built, are missing. State officials have said that information about how much each building will pay in lieu of taxes will not be known until later, and it is not clear exactly how long it will take for those payments to pay off portions of the cost to renovate Penn Station and all the costs for the public improvements, such as a plaza and new bicycle lanes. Yet, the proposed development has sailed along, receiving unanimous approval in July from the Board of Empire State Development. Five of the eight properties to be redeveloped are owned by Vornado, a publicly traded real estate investment trust that has spent two decades buying up land around Penn Station. Its chief executive, Stephen Roth, has reveled in his company's plans and his desire to charge top office rents, exceeding $100 per square foot, like some in Hudson Yards. The average asking rent in Manhattan is about $72. Mr. Roth supported the campaigns of Mr. Cuomo and Ms. Hochul and gave $69,700, the legal limit, for the governor's re-election effort. On an earnings call in August, Mr. Roth described the Penn Station development as, quote, the big kahuna, adding, I don't know any other company, a public company, that has a development of this magnitude and this unique prospects out there. Matthew Haig covers the intersection of real estate and politics in the New York region. Patrick McGeehan writes about transportation and infrastructure for the metro section. Next article, The MacGyvered Weapons in Ukraine's Arsenal. by Helene Cooper and Eric Schmidt. The billions of dollars in military aid the United States has sent Ukraine include some of the most advanced and lethal weapons systems in the world. But Ukraine has also scored big successes in the war by employing the weapons and equipment in unexpected ways and jury-rigging some on the fly, according to military experts. From the sinking of the Moskva 
Russian's Black Sea flagship, in April to the attack on a Russian airbase in Crimea this month, Ukrainian troops have used American and other weapons in ways few expected, the experts and Defense Department officials say. By mounting missiles onto trucks, for instance, Ukrainian forces have moved them more quickly into firing range. By putting rocket systems on speedboats, they have increased their naval warfare ability. And to the astonishment of weapons experts, Ukraine has continued to destroy Russian targets with slow-moving Turkish-made Bay Tracker attack drones and inexpensive plastic aircraft modified to drop grenades and other munitions. Quote, people are using the MacGyver metaphor, said Frederick B. Hodges, a former top U.S. Army commander in Europe, in a reference to the 1980s TV show in which the title character uses simple improvised contraptions to get himself out of sticky situations. After six months of war, the death toll on both sides is high. While American officials estimate that up to 80,000 Russian troops have been killed or wounded, Ukraine's outgunned military has said it is losing 100 to 200 troops a day. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Even so, the engineering ingenuity of the Ukrainians lies in stark contrast to the slow, plodding, doctrinal nature of the Russian advance. In the attack on the Moskva, for example, the Ukrainians developed their own anti-ship missile called the Neptune, which they based on the design of an old Soviet anti-ship missile, but with substantially improved range and electronics. They appear to have mounted the Neptune missiles onto one or more trucks, according to one senior, senior American official, and moved them within range of the ship, which was around 75 miles from Odessa. The striking of the Moskva was, in essence, the Neptune's proof of concept, it was the first time the new Ukrainian weapon was used in an actual war, and it took down Russia's flagship in the Black Sea. Quote, With the Moskva, they MacGyvered a very effective anti-ship system that they put on the back of a truck to make it mobile and move it around. General Hodges, who is now a senior advisor at Human Rights First, said in an interview, Ukrainian troops have done so well with the Baytractor, with the Bayraktor drone, in fact, that the company's chief executive, Haluk Bayraktor, praised their ability to squeeze as much as possible out of these systems in a recent interview with a Ukrainian news program. American military officials remain puzzled by why Russia's many-layered air defense systems have not been more effective in stopping the drones, which have no self-defense systems, are easily spotted by radar, and cruise at only about 80 miles an hour. A senior Pentagon official said Ukrainian forces had put American-supplied HARM anti-radiation missiles on Soviet-designed MiG-29 fighter jets, something that no Air Force had ever done. The American HARM missile, designed to seek and destroy Russian air defense radar, is not usually compatible with the, M- with the MiG-29 or the other fighter jets in Ukraine's arsenal. Ukraine managed to rejigger targeting sensors to allow pilots to fire the American missile from their Soviet-era aircraft. They have actually successfully integrated it. 
the senior official told reporters during a Pentagon, Pentagon briefing. He spoke on the condition of anonymity per Biden administration rules. Officials say the missiles can target Russian air defense systems up to 93 miles away. The craftiness is now on display in Crimea. In recent weeks, Ukraine has targeted the Black Sea Peninsula, which Russia illegally annexed in 2014 in a series of attacks. In the strike on the Russian airbase, Ukrainian forces destroyed eight fighter jets. A few days later, clandestine Ukrainian fighters operating behind enemy lines hit several sites in the occupied territory that Russia had thought were safe, including ammunition depots and supply lines. Then, blasts hit a military airfield outside Sevastopol, the largest city in Crimea and home to Russia's Black Sea Fleet. Russia claimed that the booms from the strike were the sound of successful anti-aircraft fire. The Ukrainians are able to exploit their knowledge in the area, said Dara Masakot, a senior policy researcher with the RAND Corporation. This exploitation is rooted in Ukraine's history as the heart of the former Soviet Union's defense industry. For decades, Ukraine was the place where the Soviet Union, and then Russia, developed turbines for warships, tanks, and even aircraft, like the Antonov An-124, which is one of the largest cargo planes in the world and is used by Russia to transport weapons to Ukraine. American military commanders who have worked with Ukrainian troops say that the Ukrainians are always ready to improvise. General Hodges said he noticed, quote, on a tactical level how clever Ukrainians were when he worked with them in 2013 and 2014. He said the adaptation of the American-supplied HARM missiles to work on MiGs demonstrated the depth of technological know-how in, Ukraine, in Ukraine's military. Quote, you can't just hang any kind of rocket off of any kind of plane. There's a whole lot of avionics and other aspects of flying and high-performance aircraft that are involved here, he said, quote, and they did it. The attacks in Crimea underscore Ukraine's increasingly aggressive military tactics as the government in Kyiv has, has relied on special forces and local partisan fighters to strike deep behind the front, disrupt Russian supply lines, and counter Russians' advantages in arms and equipment. American officials say the United States has provided detailed intelligence to help Ukraine's forces attack Russian targets throughout the war. But Ukraine conducted the first of the recent strikes in Crimea, a series of blasts at the Saki military airfield on August 9th, without notifying American and other Western allies in advance, officials said. Indeed, one American official later briefed on the attacks said Ukrainian commandos and partisan fighters had used an improvised array of weapons, explosives, and tactics in the strikes. Quote, it's all homegrown, the official said, speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss operational details. Quote, we did not get any advance notice. That first strike at the airfield destroyed much of the air power and munitions stores of the Black Sea Fleet's 43rd Naval Aviation Regiment. It was also intended to have a psychological impact on Russian forces in Crimea, the U.S. official said, calling it the, quote, Doolittle effect, a reference to an American attack on Japan in World War II. The bomber raid led by Lieutenant Colonel James H. Doolittle was a low-level daylight attack in April of 1942 that resulted in only light damage to the military and industrial targets. But it buoyed an American home front reeling from a string of setbacks in the Pacific, beginning with the Pearl Harbor attack on December 7, 1941. 
It also shattered the idea that Japan was invulnerable to American air attacks, as its government had claimed. In a telegram post after the Saki strike, Andriy Saplinko, a Ukrainian military journalist, said the damage suggested that a truck-mounted heavy missile launcher called the Grim, or Sapsan, had been used in the attack. That system was developed by Yuzmash, a state-owned Ukrainian aerospace manufacturer. The Kremlin, however, rejected the possibility that a Ukrainian-made ballistic missile system had anything to do with it. Quote, the activities in the Crimean Peninsula likely mark a new phase in the war with the Ukrainians going on the offensive with an irregular warfare campaign designed to push Russia from an area they were sure was secure, said Mick Mulroy, a former Pentagon official and CIA officer. Lane Cooper is a Pentagon correspondent. Eric Schmidt is a senior writer who has traveled the world covering terrorism and national security. He was also the Pentagon correspondent. Next article, Secret Data, Tiny Islands, and a Quest for Treasure on the Ocean Floor, by Eric Lipton. As demand grows globally for metals needed to make batteries for electric vehicles, one of the richest untapped sources of the raw materials lies two and a half miles beneath the surface of the Pacific Ocean. This remote section of the seabed, about 1,500 miles southwest of San Diego, could soon become the world's first industrial-scale mining site in international waters. The metals company, based in Vancouver, has secured exclusive access to tons of seabed rocks packed with cobalt, copper, and nickel, enough, it says, to power 280 million electric vehicles, equivalent to the entire fleet of cars in the United States. The historic climate legislation that Congress passed this month, extending tax credits for buyers of electric cars, will only accelerate the need for these materials as automakers also push forward with plans to phase out production of gasoline-powered vehicles. The metals company hopes to build a plant in Texas to process the seabed rocks and has been lobbying for federal assistance to do so. No mining has ever been done on a scale like this on the planet, said James A. R. McFarland, former head of environmental monitoring at the International Seabed Authority, an agency affiliated with the United Nations that will regulate mining by the metals company and the many other businesses and countries expected to follow. An examination by the New York Times of how the metals company is prepared to exploit this new frontier in the green energy revolution, the firm calculates it will clear $31 billion in earnings over the 25-year life of the project, tells the story of a single-minded, 15-year-long courtship of the small Jamaica-based seabed agency that holds the keys to the world's underwater treasures. Interviews and hundreds of pages of emails, letters, and other internal documents show that the firm's executives received key information from the Seabed Authority beginning in 2007, giving a major edge to their mining ambitions. The agency provided data identifying some of the most valuable seabed tracks and then set aside the prized sites for the company's future use, according to the materials. The sharing of that information has angered employees at the agency, who said some of the data was meant for developing countries trying to compete with richer countries, something the agency is mandated under international law to assist. Quote, you are violating the legal concept between the Seabed Authority, Sander Mulslow, who held top positions at the agency before leaving in 2019, said in an interview, it's scandalous. 
The metals company is one of nearly two dozen contractors that have exploration deals with the agency. Most of them are held by nations, but the firm has been especially aggressive in pushing the Seabed Authority to allow it to start mining and is now racing to begin in late 2024. The undertaking has raised concerns among environmentalists about the perpetually underfunded agency's commitment to protecting life to protecting life on the ocean floor and has renewed broader questions about who gets to profit from the riches of the sea. The Seabed Authority was established under the auspices of the United Nations well before climate change set off a surge in demand for the metals. Though it has never gotten off the ground, a unit of the agency was charged with leveling the playing field for developing countries, in part by reserving metal-rich tracts of the ocean floor and helping to mine them. With jurisdiction over half the planet, the agency's 50 employees work out of offices here in Jamaica's capital on a small annual appropriation of $10 million. The agency has at times been at war with itself, interviews and documents show. Employees have complained about the Secretary General's spending on travel and a chauffeured luxury car and sounded alarms about ethical shortcomings, including a revolving door of consultants and staff lawyers who have worked for companies with matters before the agency. At a meeting of the agency's governing body last year, a metals company contractor was among the group of business people who roamed freely among the international delegates as they debated agenda items, including the firm's request for the authority to sign off on a plan to test mining equipment. One of the top rulemaking bodies at the Seabed Authority its legal and technical commission, is secretive, meeting behind closed doors, and some of its own members also work for mining contractors, the Times found. The agency's relationship with the metals company has turned the system on its head in other ways. Developing nations working with the Seabed Authority are supposed to get access to data in certain mining areas before companies do, but the reverse happened. A top executive at the firm got the vital data first, then secured two tiny island nations as sponsors. Even with those partners, the Pacific Islands of Nauru and Tonga, which have a combined population of 120,000 and are nowhere near the mining zone, the firm has maintained nearly complete financial control over the project, including rights to all but a fraction of the anticipated profits. Quote, this company set out to game the system and use a poor developing Pacific nation as the conduit to exploit these resources, said Lord Fusatua, a former member of the Tonga Parliament. He said he was given less than an hour in 2014 to review regulations the country adopted to join the effort. The governments of Nauru and Tonga, which declined requests for comment, have lobbied the agency on behalf of the metals company. In a letter, Nauru's president, Lionel Angamia, told the agency that the mining would help secure a carbon-neutral future and financially benefit his country. Nauru is no one's puppet, I can assure you, Gerard Barron, the metals company chief executive, said in an interview. A law firm retained by the Seabed Authority, often referred to as the ISA, rejected the notion that anyone at the agency had acted inappropriately in sharing data or engaging with contractors and said that all travel and other expenses by the Secretary General General were fully authorized. The Legal and Technical Commission, the firm said, quote, meets entirely properly, close quote, with its members and exercises independence in its decisions. 
quote, the ISA has not at any time improperly or unlawfully shared confidential data, close quote, the firm Withers Bergman said in a statement to the Times. Michael Lodge, a British lawyer who has served as secretary general for the nearly six years and was its legal counsel when the data was shared beginning in 2007, also defended the agency's actions. Around that time, he said in an interview at the headquarters in December, it publicly released summaries of some data in an effort to draw attention to the seabed's riches and generate interest in mining, and it welcomed inquiries by potential partners. In March, Mr. Barron told Wall Street investors that seabed mining mining, had been made all the more urgent for the United States and its allies because of China's growing dominance of the cobalt trade and Russia's role as a major nickel supplier. I'm afraid we do not have time to complete the reading of this article, and what we have read concludes the reading of the New York Times for today. Your reader for today has been Mary Fullington. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please feel free to call us at 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening, and now, please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I.